I'm just excited to see through this, this kind of fresh cultivation of, uh, of, of prayer here what the Lord will have for us this year. Good stuff. Um, kind of in that similar vein, we're going to continue in this sermon this morning and speak later of the power of Christ. Maybe in a way that we don't often talk about, but is presented to us in the scriptures. And it kind of begins this morning with uh, talking about a guilty conscience. I know it's the new year. We're only three Sundays in the new year. Um, usually it's the time to talk about, you know, plans and, you know, what's coming up. Um, not really maybe the most popular thing to talk about having a guilty conscience, but that's where we're at today. Um, so C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite books, Mere Christianity, he, uh, he, he kind of addresses this conversation about why isn't our conscience clear? You know, many of you have been following Christ for a long time. Some of you are a little newer in your um, uh, uh, relationship with Christ and uh, following him. But have you ever thought about the simple question of just, you know, kind of zoom out? I like to ask big questions like, what is, you know, your conscience? Um, how, what is that thing inside of us that, that just kind of begins to, to feel weighty when our conscience is broken, when it's defiled? C.S. Lewis says this. He says, there are two points I want to make. And he says, first, that human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. And they cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave that way. They know the law of nature and they break it. These two facts are the foundation of all clear thinking about ourselves and the universe we live in. He gives a kind of a, some examples. I'll just paraphrase one of them. He says, you know, really, if you're anywhere in the world, you're on a bus, and there's, you're all kind of exiting to get out, and say one person just kind of puts their shoulder down and rams their way through the line and gets out first. It doesn't really matter where you are in the world. You're not going to find a bus full of people that's like, oh, good for him. Go ahead. Break it for everybody. No problem. Like, there's a universal thing that says what you just did wasn't right. Right? Like, we're not okay with this. And C.S. Lewis is kind of saying, he calls it the law of nature. Right? This thing we're kind of born with of right and wrong. Um, you have, the uh, book of Romans describes it in this way. In chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law, they, this is a revealed word of God he's speaking of when he says the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So think about your conscience like a smoke alarm. Okay, um, we we recently got a, uh, a, a our fireplace repaired and the new insert was placed in and um, we were burning it and you know what you something like that like you don't know what's going I never used one of those, one of those things before 
But we started, you know, burning it, and uh, just a strong scent came off of it, and just all the fire alarms were going off in the house. Um, it wasn't anything. It was just the chemicals that it was shipped with. But, you know, a, a, a smoke alarm alerts you to the presence that there's a fire. Or even actually the other day, <laughs> we, uh, we had another strange smell because we've been doing a lot of electrical work in our house. And so we had a strange smell, and I could have swore the walls felt hot. And I actually called, and I was like, can I just have somebody from the department, like, show up just to make sure, like, there's no electrical fire? That was my simple request. And we had, like, six fire trucks. They were rolling a fire hose in my front door. I'm like, whoa, 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 I just asked for somebody to come and check. Like, I don't see smoke. And my neighbors are like, is everybody okay? I was like, we were fine. But, you know... The reality of a smoke alarm is to, to alert you that something is on fire and you should be aware of it and that's kind of like your conscience, right? It goes off and says something's not right inside of your soul. Something's not right. But this chapter in Hebrews engages the idea that uh, when we have a guilty conscience, we, we can't just really live with it. Like, we, we, we would like to maybe sit down on our hands and say, I'm just going to stop feeling guilty. I'm just going to, it's just going to stop. Whatever I did, I don't know, I just want to drop the guilty feelings and move on. But there's actually an impulse to make it right. But there's this impulse inside of us that says, you know, I've screwed something up, I've, I've sinned against somebody, I've dropped the ball, whatever it might be, like... How do I make this right? It's not enough just to leave it as is. We have this impulse to make amends for it. I mean, for example, um, if I stole money from one of you and uh, you didn't know it and my conscience was guilty and I came back and said, I stole money from you, I'm, I'm really sorry. And that's all that I did? You would probably be like, maybe and then pay it back. Like, maybe you should also pay it back, right? There's this feeling that, like, I should do something like that. I should make amends for this. I should pay this back to fully make this right. Um, it's interesting. I was exploring just various ways that, you know, in, in our nation, when, when the guilty conscience surfaces, what do people kind of do to it? I didn't know this. There's actually a, what, the, what has been officially called now, the Government uh, Conscience Fund. The U.S. Treasury has this. And this is the story about it. Um, it is a voluntary fund. began in 1811. There was actually a, a, a U.S. military a guy who was overpaid and slept on it for a while, didn't tell anybody, and then mailed a check into the treasury and said, I couldn't sleep at night. I was overpaid. Here's the money back. And it started this voluntary fund. So it's usually anonymous donations to the U.S. Treasury when people cheat the system and they feel guilty about it. And they want to make amends. Um, not that long ago, a woman actually mailed in a handmade quilt to ease her conscience for avoiding full payment of her taxes. There was another woman who uh, mailed in a $1,000 check that said, Dear Internal Revenue Service, I have not been able to sleep at night because I cheated on last year's income tax. Enclosed, find a cashier's check for 1000 bucks. If I still can't sleep, I will send you the full balance. These are real stories. They're, they're great. But these are examples of attempting to correct a wrong by reversing it. That's a natural thing. But all of that, at the end of the day, is, is surface level stuff because the question still remains well, like what drove you to, 
the cheat on your taxes in the first place? Like, what about that inside of you? Like, how is that corrected? How is that fixed? How is that repaired? You're still left with the conscience of, I, I did that. Like, I actually did that. And maybe that situation is repaired now and that breach of relationship has been, you know, restored between me and that person. But there's something like, so one of my favorite plays, I know uh, Pastor Jim Debbie also uh, shares this uh, favorite as well, is uh, Macbeth, Shakespeare. And after the murder of, of King Duncan, the blood is still on Macbeth's hands. He makes this interesting comment. He says, to know my deed, t'were best not to know myself. Because he's recognizing that what just happened just came out of his own heart. And he was like, man, like this deed is like buried within me. So if I turn my eyes away from the deed, I'd have to turn my eyes away from myself. Our guilty conscience is evidence that sometimes we have a very difficult time in our identity of when we think of who we are, if we uh, become aware of the shortcomings, we have a hard time not thinking of ourselves as the one who failed, the one who did that one thing because of the sickness that is in our hearts. Now we take all that conversation and we're going to kind of ride on the pigtails of uh, the coattails of last week when we saw Christ in the most holy place in the temple of heaven, standing beside God the Father as our high priest, where he is interceding for us. And now we're going to see how his work and his serving in that place, how he alone can wipe our conscience clean. So let's dive into this chapter, beginning in 9, verses 1 through 5. This is a word of the Lord. And the first covenant had regulations for worship and also an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense, the golden covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had budded the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. Last week we spoke about how, you know, the beginning of the Bibles is often unfamiliar with many of us because it feels very alien and very different from our realities. And so we, we tend to not be so familiar with what we can call Act 1, which is the, the First Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. But we're more familiar with Act 2, which is the New Testament. But just like walking in the middle of a movie, um, if you missed Act 1, you're going to be a little confused about Act 2. And so he's kind of reminding his audience here of Act 1, if you will, what was going on in this tabernacle. I have a picture um, behind us that kind of shows this, this most holy place. Right there's if you're a Bible nerd, there's a little discrepancy where the where the uh, altar of incense was behind the curtain or in front of it, but you can go nerd out on that detail in your own time. Um, on top of the Ark of the Covenant, these 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 cherubims were there. These are really angels, and you see their wings that are over them, and um, and this was to depict essentially like the the throne of God as it is in heaven, with the angels that are beside him. Um, that's where the cherubim stand there, and the Ark of the Covenant was where 
God set in authority in the temple. And so he's summarizing all of this, but he says we cannot discuss these things in detail now, so I'm not going to discuss them in detail either. We're going to move on. In verse 6, when everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room. That's behind that veil, that curtain we saw. Only the high priest entered that place. And only once a year and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins that people had committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy Place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. I'm going to ask you a question. You ever stood in a sacred place? What I mean by sacred is, uh, you know, I've shared before, I think, some while ago, but um, I don't know, I forgot what year this was. A long time ago, 20, 15 years ago, I was in Rome and we went to the Sistine Chapel. And when you walk in the Sistine Chapel, there's guards there whose professional duty is just to shh you until you stop talking, you know? Because you walk in and everybody's like, wow, look at this, shh. Because they're trying to give this, this aura of like, this is a place of, of reverence. Some of the most beautiful artwork in the world is gathered on those walls and maybe look at them in silence and not talk and not laugh and treat it with some kind of reverence. It's a sacred space. If you go to our buildings in our nation's capital in D.C., they're built in such a way that's supposed to kind of communicate sacredness. The Supreme Court building, you know, the, the Library of Congress. I took my son Abel there recently. And a beautiful building, big, and there's a sense of kind of sacredness to some degree that's wrapped up there. And what makes a building sacred is not so much the building itself, it's the contents Something special is in there, or something special takes place in there. And I want you to think about the tabernacle like a sacred space, okay? But not just any sacred space. Like there's something about the tabernacle that's supposed to point us to a time even farther back in biblical history. Just an example, I want to read about this lampstand. This, we, we call it the menorah often. Um, I'm going to read when the lampstand was created. Just keep in mind, like, what imagery? This isn't just some normal lamp. There's something more going on. Exodus 25, verses 31 through 33, says this. God speaking to Moses about making this lampstand. You shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. There shall be six branches going out of its sides three branches of the lampstand out of one side and three the other three cups made like almond blossoms each with a calyx and flower on one branch three cups made like almond blossoms on the other six branches going out okay so what's going on is this just like a lamp we have in a living room that you turn on what is it made to look like a tree a tree you might say, what's up with that? Why is there a tree lamp inside of the tabernacle? What's going on? Let's be reminded of this Garden of Eden that the Bible starts off with. Genesis 2 verse 9, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. 
The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Even when Solomon built the temples many centuries later, after Moses, he, he covered it in paintings of trees, fruit trees, right? Because this idea is where God was in Eden has always been, we've been looking for that place all over again. We've been trying to get back to God's place where God is. And so when he was building this tabernacle, part of its design was intended to make you think and consider God's place. We're kind of back to Eden in a way. We're back to Eden, but it's not the same, right? This veil was there and God's place was still kind of blocked off. You even see, and if you zoom out, um, when the promised land itself was described about what God's people were going towards out of Egypt, it was described in such a way that often sounded like the Garden of Eden. I think it was um, Ezekiel that actually called the promised land. This is like Eden, right? God's place where God's people were. That's what he wanted to bring to this world and to gather his people to where he was. And the whole tabernacle project was trying to give people access to God. But this Old Testament law really only brought what we can call ritual cleansing um, to to, uh, people's defilements that they brought to God's sacred nation and sacred place. In a far lesser way, it would be like if you're in Rome and you're going to the Sistine Chapel, but you just kind of roll out of bed and, you know, you didn't brush your teeth, you're still in your jammies and pink fuzzy slippers, your hair is, you know, everywhere like a bird's nest, your breath is rank, and you just kind of like walk into that place. And it's like, you could have probably put on like shoes, you know, it's kind of an important place. Like in a far lesser way, the, the people be, you know, staring at you like you should have brushed your teeth. Like, I don't understand. This is Sistine Chapel. Like in a far lesser way, when God, where God is present, holiness is present, purity is present. And when human beings would enter into his place in the time of Moses, in the time of the Old Testament, they would bring with them unclean hearts. It would bring with them sin, <clears throat> and it would bring a defilement, and the whole idea was to make people clean, but this whole system was over and over and over, had to be repeated, and this is where the theme of exile comes in. Adam and Eve, didn't, they couldn't stay in God's presence. They were kicked out, right? You can't be in God's presence when you bring defilement there you have God's own people in the promised land and after so many centuries of warnings to repent and to turn they were also kicked out of God's presence they were exiled from the sacred space from where God was and so the blood of the sacrifices were sprinkled in the tabernacle um, it, it was a way to express the, the, the hope that they could be with God through the death of something else, the death of a sacrifice, with death being the consequence of our sin and shortcomings. Some kind of payment was needed in order to then say, I still want to be a part of this community of God's people. I still want to be a part of this community that has a special and unique relationship with God, but I know that I'm unclean and I'm defiled, so here's the death of an animal in his blood in my place so I can be here but the whole time as the author points out here the curtain and the tabernacle separating God's people from himself it stood it stood 
all the cleansing to enter God's space, that curtain was still hanging. It was still hanging up in God's bedroom, if you will. And we couldn't just simply walk in there. Um, All the evil that separates us from God, um, it's not just in the injustices that we have committed in breaking a line, you know, on the bus or something or stealing from someone. Um, It's this whole feeling like, how do we pay this back? What what, what can be done for um, uh, the sickness that's inside of us? And so this is one reason, just as a side note here, like churches can be messy, very messy, okay? Churches can be a messy place to commit yourself to. And the biggest reason why, in fact, I know the way to actually have a perfect church. There's a clear path to this. If you have a church with no people, you will find the perfect church. Right? You want a perfect nation? Well, find the nation that has no people. It'll be the perfect nation, right? Um, That's the reality, you know? And so a lot of this Old Covenant stuff, I want you to think about this. Um, I'll I'll read this beginning, continuing on here in verse 9. The author says, this is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So um, we just bought a house, and imagine getting a house and just, you know, landscaping, just making it amazing looking on the outside, but you walk in, and there's like exposed wirings, holes in the walls, the floor has gaps in it, and it's completely unlivable, but the outside looks just beautiful right? External cleansing, dressing up the outside, but the inside is a complete disaster. And the author here is pointing towards the reality that the the, the system that was in place dealt with external things that made you clean, but it it was always kind of pointing, saying there's, you need a deeper uh, cleansing. You need a deeper salvation, if you will, that's internal, one that's not just external. And so he then fixes our eyes on Jesus, In verse uh, 11, he continues on. He says, When Christ came as the high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. We talked about this last week. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. Landscape on the front of the house looks great, but there's still the problem inside. But how much more then, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences? from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God. You see, Jesus' own death and sacrifice didn't just reverse one situation or bring an offering to cleanse you from what happened last week. That's kind of the old way of things in the Hebrew Bible and the old covenant. 
Jesus went into the, the house and he began ripping up all of your sheetrock and repairing every single bit of plumbing and doing all the work, right? That's the real kind of deep work of Christ that he got his hands messy with. But through the Spirit, he offered himself unblemished, cleansed our conscience then from acts that lead to death so we can now serve, just as he's serving now, that we can serve the living God. And there's something I want to point out here. He's not talking about just the time that we say, you know, when we first become a Christian, we, we say, I, 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 I give my faith in you, Christ. I need salvation. Would you please forgive me of my sin? And we're cleansed, right? And that can happen just as you're sitting down in a chair, as you're sitting in your pew this morning. That can happen just like that. But he seems to be the author here pointing towards something bigger than just that first kind of moment. Because he's talks about being cleansed of our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we can now serve the living God. He's speaking about, as most uh, people who gave their comments on this, um, this is it, the, the moral transformation that happens. You and I are moral beings, hence this whole conscience thing that we're born with of right or wrong. And we need a moral transformation uh, modern day in 2024, there's a lot of talk, you know, that we're purely sexual beings to identify in our sexuality or only our ethnic identi- identity or social classes. And those things are all realities that we can talk about, but there's not a lot of talk today about the reality of being a moral being, a moral being. And as C.S. Lewis said, um, we all have that standard of right and wrong and we all know that we've broken it. Jesus came uh, initially not to make us perfect. That will happen when he returns. He came to transform us today. He came to bring transformation. Um, Right now, uh, I want you to consider, the death of Christ happened 2,000 years ago, but that death that he did still is bringing realities of, of, of power and transformation to our present, and that is why our eyes continually are cast back thousands of years to what he did. And we do this now now in verse 15. He says, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. Again, kind of like last week, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. I'll read through the last chunk of this. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll in all the people. And he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with a 
better sacrifice than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence, in God's place, right? Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again. The way that the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once and for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation for those who are waiting for him. That's a large chunk of scripture. How can we sum up kind of what chapter nine is pointing us towards that last um, passage? It is this, that Jesus' death in the past, it brings a cleansing of our conscience today. Um, This is a quote from the fifth century from Leo the Great, Bishop of Rome. I really appreciate this. He says this, everything that the Son of God did and taught For the reconciliation of the world, we know not only is a historical account of things now past, but we also experience them in the power of the works that are present. Do you understand this about when we talk about the death of Christ and how we we look back to the cross? This is not just some event that happened 2,000 years ago. There is power in the cross that is active today that is present today, that is even available today, that you and I can even experience today. And as we begin to kind of round out this sermon, he says that he's coming to finish this work one day to make all things perfect and to finally bring that final salvation to all who are waiting for him. And I want to kind of close in the last few minutes here on that verse 14. Speaking of the blood of Christ, how much more then will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offer himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so we may serve the living God? I know this is a lot of thick stuff, and a lot of Hebrews will be kind of lightening up here in the next few chapters. It's kind of one of the last heavier chapters. But um, I want to kind of bring up something. Um, If this is what's offered in Christ, a clean conscience... Why isn't the church, like, think of the grace that is, so that veil was there. Christ died, the veil was torn. The access to God then was opened up. So because of what Christ did, like, we don't have to fear being in God's place anymore. Right? Jesus died outside of the city, and in a way, when he took on the sins of the world, a lot of people picked this up, and the authors of the Gospels are pointing us towards this. Like, that was Jesus' kind of own exile out of the city to Jerusalem because he was holding our sins on his own shoulders. He himself said, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? He experienced being out of God's presence as he held our sin on his shoulders, but upon his conquering of death, that way has been burst open, and now we can be in God's place without fear. Without fear being rejected, without fear being judged, fear being pushed out, knowing that our conscience can finally be cleansed and we can become transformed. My, my, my question is, the church doesn't seem to be a place that's really living that truth out. 
Like, I don't know if you walk around to people and say, like, it, it, do you, when you think of the church, is that a place where you can go and with your guilty conscience that you're holding and just walk in and find relief from that, hear good news and find relief? I think most of us would know that our neighbors and such would say, you know, I've heard a lot about the church that if you go there, like, your guilty conscience will, might get worse and not better. Like, I hear that it's a place of judgment. Like, I can't really be honest when I'm there about, you know, the, the dirty stuff and the stuff that I really need, like, relief from. Like, that's not really the place that I've heard that I can go to cast that off. <clears throat> but friends, we, we should be. Should we not? If this is the truth, and we know that the Spirit of God rests in his people, that we need to look at this building, this, this place. This is where God is. This is God's place. Like, this is where you are. You're carrying the very presence of God. So people should be experiencing this grace that we're talking about. Like, you can receive a clean conscience and a transformation when you place your faith on Christ. And thus, whatever you bring to the table of your sin, of your shortcomings, he offers grace. He offers cleansing. He offers forgiveness. Is that what happens like when people meet you? They come into, they brush shoulders with somebody who is living this out, this kind of love, this kind of grace. Well, the Bible talks about we're ambassadors for Christ to, to, to live out this good news and invite people to experience this forgiveness of Christ. Is that does that define your life? Does that describe this church? Does that describe the church in our own country? I think that sometimes um, we, we, we fall into this. We fall into kind of hiding our sin, not wanting to be honest about it. And in the way, you know, we're, we're, we're still carrying a shame as if all the things we're talking about is not really true. And so we want to do our own covering. You know, one word that this is used for the death of Christ that covers our sins is the word atonement, and it simply means a cover, to cover our sin. But we'd like to do our own covering often by hiding it, right? And we walk in with smiles, and we're not really truly honest with those things. We don't cast them on Christ. We do our own covering over them, thinking this will be sufficient to get rid of my guilty conscience, Friends, that's a false gospel. That's false good news. You're covering the sheet that you're trying to throw over your own sin. There's a lot of holes in that. It's going to deteriorate quickly. It is not an adequate covering of your sin. Only Christ is the adequate covering of your sin. And so as a church, we must point people towards the adequate covering and have a culture of doing so as a church. We want to invite people to follow Jesus, a part of this community, knowing, you know, I can come here and just be honest about stuff and not be exiled from this community and not be kicked out and not be judged or not be holding to contempt. If I'm coming with an honest, repentant heart, will these people receive me just as Christ does? Will I be let into God's place and not be, you know, booted out here? Um, I read actually an interesting story of, uh, of Brad Pitt, who was spent a couple of years in AA meetings, and this is what he had to say about the AA meetings. meetings. He says, uh, there's an article written about it, he says, his recovery group was composed entirely of men, and Pitt was moved by their vulnerability. 
bringing, you know, all their stories with them. Pitt said, you had all these men sitting around being honest and open in a way I have never heard. It was a safe space where there was little judgment and therefore little judgment of yourself. Astonishingly, no one from the group sold Pitt's stories to the tabloids. The men trusted one another, and in that trust, he found catharsis. It was actually really freeing just to expose the ugly sides of yourself, he said. There's great value in that. And I read that and say, man, like, can that, can that be the church? Like, can that be us? People come here and find the freedom and know they're not going to be judged. And we just say, look to Jesus. Like, bring your stuff to him. He can cleanse your conscience. You are invited to God's space because of what Christ has done. Just repent of your sins and he's going to send his spirit to transform you. Friend, you are welcome here. That must describe who we are as a church. This is one of the disciples and they said, how many times should we forgive somebody? Jesus said, well... Get 77, times it by seven. Not literally saying that 491, cut them off. He's simply saying, uh, it does, there's no end here. Like, the death of Christ, his covering is sufficient for sin after sin after sin. He is always inviting, guys, grace that we're talking about. This is radical stuff. And I want the church to be a place that is radically living this out. Because when people experience the love of God that we're looking at, there's genuine transformation that comes when you experience this. We should be a magnet of grace and thus a magnet, magnet of transformation. I want, I want to share a story about how this kind of love we're talking about and um, how we can offer this, um, how it transforms. And then uh, at this point, I'm, I do want to call up the worship team to come forward. Before I read this, the question is like, are we living out this love? Do you know this love that Christ is, is offering us? Um, this comes from a film called The Three Seasons, a series of vignettes about life in post-war Vietnam. Uh, one of the stories is about Hai, H-A-I, a cyclo driver, um, which is a bicycle rickshaw. I don't even know what that is, but that's what he is. And Lan, a beautiful prostitute. Both have deep, unfulfilled desires. High is in love with Lan, the prostitute. Lan lives in grinding poverty and loves to live in the beautiful world where she works, but in which she never spends the night. She hopes that the money she makes by her prostitution work will be her means of escape, but instead the work brutalizes and enslaves her. Then High enters a cycle race and wins the top prize. With the money... He brings Lan to the hotel and he pays for a night and pays her fee. Then to everyone's shock, he tells her he just wants to give her a place to fall asleep in peace. Instead of using his power and wealth to be with her, he spends it to purchase a place for her for one night to experience a normal world, to fulfill her desire to belong to somewhere normal. Lan finds such grace deeply troubling, thinking that Han has done, or Hai has done this to control her. But when it becomes apparent that he is using his power to serve rather than use her, it begins to transform her, making it impossible for her to return to a life of prostitution. 
when I see those kind of stories of grace and love, when people aren't judged but they're given grace and love, when we see this Christ who offers a clean conscience and invites us to come to the most holy place in God's own very place, I think of a church, I say, Lord, may these kind of stories be known about us. May the way that we talk about Jesus and live out community amongst ourselves be reminiscent of the love that Christ is truly, be representative of the, of the love that Christ is offering to this world. And it starts with us, church, as we step forward in wanting to cultivate deeper community in our church. I want this to be a place where people can say, yes, these people get it. These people know the love of Christ. And they know what he offers. And I'm welcome there. I'm welcome there. Let me, um, let, let me pray for us. Lord, um, may we embody this stuff, Lord. May we embody the good news. Lord, you have opened up a way to be with God. Lord, you have enabled this place to be your place on earth. Lord, where all are welcome who um, come in faith with a heavy, guilty conscience to be relieved of their sin and to experience transformation through your love. Lord, help us. I, I pray right now, maybe uh, names and faces that come to mind, uh, people that we know, that we love, who maybe have uh, an idea of the church that's just the opposite of grace, just one of judgment. Lord, would you... Would you give us opportunities, Lord, to, to be a representation of these amazing, radical truths, Lord? Would you empower us to do so, Lord? I think of that scripture where, where um, Paul says, you know, in our weakness, the power of Christ is present. And Lord, I pray that um, as a church who, who knows that we're weak in our weakness, he is strong and all these things, Lord, may your power be present as we pursue being a community of love and grace for all who are seeking it, Lord. Empower us for those purposes. And I pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.